Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Enough time has passed so that all the data has been collected, crunched, and analyzed to see what really happened in the startup and venture world last year. Peter Walker, Carta's head of insights, returns to the podcast to separate the truth from narrative. We look at what happened at the national level from pre-seed to late stage and then sift through the numbers to see how the Austin ecosystem held up. I'll give you a hint. It did quite well. I am, again, grateful to Peter and the entire Carta team. Because if you look in the episode show notes, you will find a link to all the analysis we discuss, plus even some additional data we didn't get to. Enjoy this insight-filled episode with Peter. Peter, welcome back. Jason, good to be here. I am so excited, of course, to nerd out on all the data that you have. Well, welcome to my life. What's a couple of nerds talking to each other? That's that's what I love to do in the morning. <laughs> um, yes, as, as people don't know, kind of as we're recording this, it is uh, seven forty-five uh, in the morning your time. So this is this is this is the way to wake up, right? Exactly. This is the pre-coffee nerd out. It's perfect. <laughs> All right. So as we're kind of looking at this. I think the point we wanted to do was really look back at all the data that you have for 2023. Yep. How did it really look in terms of startups? And then think about what does it mean kind of for 2024 going forward? So big picture, now that all of the data kind of is in on 2023, what did it look like? What, what was going on? 2023 was, <clears throat> I think... Uh, candidly a little bit worse than we at Carta were expecting it to be. Um, you know, we've, we're coming off of the decline through 2022, which was pretty uh, self-explanatory. You know, interest rates changed. The boom times were over from the peak in 21. Um, and then 23 was this kind of uh, transition year. I, I, I had hoped that it would kind of level off and it, it just steadily kept declining a bit. Um, in terms of total rounds, total capital raised, everything like that. So it was a difficult year for founders. VCs seemed very reluctant to deploy a lot of capital, even though, you know, we've all read the headlines about how much tri powder still remains in the venture ecosystem. So overall, not a fun year all around. So when I'm looking at kind of some of the data and looking at Q4, Broadly, right? We can obviously see there were bright spots talking about like AI and certain yeah. regions and, and all of that, but it, you didn't see any surge in capital or rounds. But, and correct me if you, if you think differently, I, I didn't see a further huge drop off either in Q4. Yeah. So, it, are we starting to level off? I, I also want to say one other thing when I look at I've heard these things kind of put out people saying like, okay, so worst, worst environment in 10 years. And I've heard that, that a lot. And I'm, I'm trying to scratch my head a little bit going, what does that mean? Because when I look at some of the numbers, it's like, okay, kind of looks like 18, 19, which is yeah. not 10 years. So can you help me 
put those two statements together? Sure. I I think, yeah, you hear a lot of this is the worst venture market in X amount of time. I think when people are saying that, what they're doing is they're implicitly talking about the the pace of change. Like it okay. isn't actually the case that there's less capital being invested into startups than there was in 2017, 2018. Like uh, it's as a as an asset class, venture has certainly gotten much bigger over the last five or six years. When people mention that, I think what they mean is, wow, the whiplash from 21 has been really severe, and that is changing. So the, the founders that are raising today are looking back at the founders that raised two years ago and being like, wow, you all had it easy, um, which in some cases is true, and in others, you know, it's always kind of difficult to raise capital. To your point about Q4, I agree. I don't think this was a like an extended decline. It basically just kind of leveled off. So are we at bottom? I certainly hope so. I think this first quarter is going to be very telling. Uh, my, my supposition for 2024 is that there's going to be more funds raised in 2024 for sure across all startups, but it's also going to be a year where a lot of companies shut down. So it's going to feel very bifurcated. And are we, is that better? probably on the whole, but it's certainly, it, it, you know, it won't feel like the sugar high sort of years. How do you layer in some of the, I know this isn't Carta data, but some of the general news of less funds being raised, like some, yeah. you know, less investors, we're seeing some, you know, as we're recording this, you know, Foundry, now they kind of just had signaled this, but Foundry not raising another fund, some bigger yeah. funds, you know, closing down, how is the actual VC market itself kind of affecting the downstream startups being funded? So I think in this case, you can think of the entirety of the VC market as having different time lags from, say, public. So public changes first, interest rates changes, the macro environment changes. Right. And then it would flow down to startups themselves because they need to fundraise in the next 6, 12, 18 months. So they're going to have to make choices either about you know, cutting costs or shutting down or trying to figure out how they keep growing. And then sort of the tail comes around and whips at the VC fund level. So the VC funds are going to be most insulated from some of those changes just because they function at different timescales. You know, they deploy capital over two to four years. They're raising funds. They might be raising their next fund now, but they hadn't raised a fund since everything changed in 21. So I do think, unfortunately, we're going to see more VC funds shut down. They won't typically do the foundry path. Most likely what's going to happen is that uh, VCs that raised fund one or fund two will just not be able to raise their second or third fund. So they'll deploy capital out of the funds that they have, and then that'll kind of be their career as a VC, and they'll go on and do something else. Um, it's very more like, the, more like the quiet shutdown where we don't hear about them after fund well, two, right? 100%. Yeah. And it's really difficult for founders to know who amongst the potential investors fall into that bucket. It's, it, you know, unless they're asking the right questions in their founder investor interviews, it's, and sometimes maybe they're not even getting the answers then it's really hard to know whether or not this, this fund is going to be around. You know, if you're taking money from Andreessen, it's a pretty good idea that they're going to be around in 10 years. If you're taking money from an emerging manager, that is a bit of a something that you need to consider, which is unfortunate because that those emerging managers are probably going to be, you know, more diverse, more demographically different people. But it's it's not the case that all of the VC funds that are in existence now are going to be in existence in three years. 
Well, so then one of the things, and I, I want to look at sort of some of the the valuation numbers in a second, and then where that's sure. sitting at the stages. But one of the things that we talked about this before <laughs> when we were looking kind of at first half numbers that it was somewhat of a flight to quality on the yep. startup side because we saw kind of some of the valuations stay the same, but because the you know the less quality was falling out. But then, based on what you just said, um, do you see then almost a flight to quality on the VC side happening as well? Because hey, I don't know if this emerging manager is going to stick around, so I, I got to go to a higher tier, even though yeah. I might have wanted that anyways. I mean, I get those pedigreed on, but sure. there's a certain level of high, even higher risk now of getting the tier two, tier three. Now, I don't think that, you know, if we're being completely candid, there's not a ton of founders who get to choose, right? It's They're true. like, I need capital. I'm going to take capital from the people that are most interested in my startup. If that happens to be an emerging manager, fantastic. If it happens to be a tier one fund, even better. Um, but amongst the you know cohort of startups that does have a choice, I would bet yes. I would bet on a return to brand names. Just on the VC side, the same way that we have seen over the past year, a strong preference for repeat founders. Um, people who have done it before and understand the venture ecosystem and that is that's a shame because it kind of by defa- by definition cuts out new folks. Um, but there were there you know in 2020 and 2021 there were a lot of <clears throat> angels who started raising their first fund. There were a lot of startup operators who said, "Hey, this VC thing looks pretty interesting. Maybe I'll take a couple years and do that." Um, and that I think that behavior is going to be just as it has on the founder side, kind of eliminated by the macro environment. So. Those that are VCs in 2024, 2025 really want to be VCs. Um, in some ways, that's good, but there's no denying it's probably going to be painful for funds that have to shut down or, or founders that are left with a little bit less support from those funds than they expected. So kind of going down to the next level, kind of we've seen the, you know, the big numbers in terms of <clears throat> how much fund has been raised. And as we said, it's, it, it looks like the total volume and value numbers look like 18, 19, but I think that's a good point about the the velocity and the whiplash from 21 and 22, I think is a good way to put it as the 10 years. Yeah. How are we looking at like valuations? I mean, some of the data that you put out, it's a little crazy to me to see, you know, seed seems to have held up, but then in Q4, we saw these like jumps in valuations for A, B, and D. Am I looking yeah. at noise or is did something happen in Q4? I think, I think it's a little noisy, but okay. uh, but and the in the macro level, I don't actually think that those valuation jumps are too surprising. So a couple points: when we look at valuations, I'm not at inflation adjusting these, so we kind of have to think about that a little bit. That definitely adds some percentage decline if you were to like purchasing power. But it's true that especially at the early stages, valuations never really fall fell as much as they perhaps uh, would be assumed to have fallen. Um, in the late stages, things were down. Volume and fundraising kind of fell essentially in tandem with one another. And then recently, yeah, there's been an uptick in valuations basically across every C, every stage except for C for some reason, which I think is mostly noise. Um, but effectively, what I think is happening is flight to quality so the, the only people that are raising right now are people that are raising into momentum. So they're probably have pretty good traction, et cetera, um, especially at the later stages. And then two, um, we're just coming up on a, on the end of a period. 
So it's 2024. If we say that the market shifted in early 22, that's two years. And over that two-year period, a lot of these companies have changed their capital efficiency. They've changed their headcount. They've changed a lot about how they operate so that they can make money in this new world. Um, If they did that successfully, you would expect that they would be able to start fundraising now. If they did that unsuccessfully, perhaps they continue to just try to take any bridges, any sort of money, and you might see those companies show up in the shutdown numbers a quarter, two quarters from now. So I think there's a real stratification of the people that have made that jump successfully and the folks that just can't. So on the seed side, are we looking at, is it still frothy? Is it the fact that given it was seed and how early it is, it it kind of, these are new and we're outside the bubble. And so it's a higher quality level because they're making it through that filter that people were now applying because we're now post bubble. What are your kind of thoughts on it still being kind of high? I think seed is functioning. So seed is the most interesting part of venture to me because it is this, it's like an estuary. Like it's a mix of all of these weird stuff that's going on. The, there's pre-seed, which for me, in my definition, it's just any round under a million dollars raised on safes or convertible notes. And then so much of seed has actually shifted instruments away from priced to, con- to safes mostly. It's about 50-50 now for rounds over a million dollars are on safes instead of on priced. So if you look all across seed, it's down about 20% in terms of total funding from 2021, which is pretty good, all things considered. And if you, But if you include safes, it's actually up a little bit from 2021. So there's just like a mix of modalities. People are moving towards safes. And I just think that based on all of, if you're talking about, again, back to the idea about which venture funds are going to survive. Um, there was a lot of talk in 2021 about all these crossover investors, the soft banks, the you know, Tiger Global, et cetera, coming in and saying, hey, we're going to be late stage investors into venture and like, take these companies public. Now what happened is like a lot of venture investors got very excited about the earliest part of the market. So they moved down market to series A seed. It's really hard to deploy a big venture fund into seed stage companies. These checks are just not that big. So that I think deploy a billion dollar fund into seed. That's not going to work. How are you? (laughs) Well, I mean, good luck to you. I, I, you'll need to meet quite a few entrepreneurs in order to make that happen. Like I don't really, I think that is fundamentally the floor underneath seed stage is fund economics versus, you know, whatever's going on with the intrinsic value of these companies. It is very difficult to deploy tons and tons of money into seed stage startups. Most people want to do that right now because they're far enough away from IPO that you can kind of ignore all the challenges with the IPO market in late stage. But it's it's just a fact that there's there are not enough companies that are venture backable to deploy a yeah, billion dollars into seed stage in a single fund. But is that part of what we're seeing though in seed to your point is the, the mix of investors? Are we seeing more institutional like even if they're smaller funds whether they be single gps or but so versus like angel networks and small uh you know things of that nature and is that obviously when you have a little bit more of the i I hate it's sometimes hard to use the word institutional when it's a single gp but 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 more sophisticated capital 
yes. might be pushing some of the valuations up, partially because we're, they're understanding that, oh, this is something that is more interesting. I, I think that's 100% happening. Yeah, when you use the word institutional, you know, we take it to mean any, any venture fund that's playing in the pre-seed or seed space, of which there are far more than there used to be. And it also is the case that you know, we saw an, a giant upsurge in interest around angel investing and syndicates and all that kind of stuff in 2020 and 2021. That's receded, but it hasn't receded back down to 2019 levels. It's just not at peak. So like more people now are interested in that sort of angel and syndicate investing than were in 2018, 2019. It just, again, if you just compare it to the peak, it's down. So there are a lot of avenues to get in that first money one of the interesting things that we can't see from the data yet, but I'm fascinated by this year, is are there going to be a bunch of companies that try to take pre-seed and seed and then stop? No more cash, um, no more funding and try to fund out of customer uh, mm. revenues or whatever. That's being talked about a lot. I, ha I don't know whether companies are actually going to be able to do that. Um, so it, I think it's a fascinating question. So... Well, that kind of leads, I think, interesting to the to the next point, which takes longer to look at. But I know yeah. you have data on the distance between raises and how yeah. long people are taking. And I think, obviously, it's been lengthening. And there's a combination. Probably one is how long it takes to raise, and people yeah. are you know being a little bit more stingy with with giving out capital. And then on the other side, how many are changing their underlying cost structure so that they can survive longer? Yep. So what, I mean, kind of one, what's the data look like? And then two, do you have any insights on, you know, what's the mix and the drivers of that? So to take the data first, um, the sort of bandied about wisdom is you need 18 to 24 months of runway, but to, or you, you expect to fundraise at an 18 to 24 months timescale. So you raise a seed, 24 months later, you raise your A, uh, et cetera. <clears throat> right now, the average um, for the, diff the average gap between a priced seed round and a primary series A is actually about two and a quarter years. Um, and then from series A to series B, it's over two and a half years. That's the average. So if you only have six or nine months of revenue or cash left in the bank. Like now is the time. Certainly this, the, these timelines keep being extended. Uh, but you made the crucial point, which is it's not just extended because investors are being more stingy. It might also be because the companies themselves are choosing not to fundraise because they've changed something about their capital structure. Uh, again, I'm pretty skeptical that a company that has already raised a series A or especially a series B is going to be able to get off the venture hamster wheel. I don't, I think it's pretty rare that you can just like turn that spigot off and now we're profitable and we're going to just never take any capital again. Um, at the earliest stages though, if the companies are growing up in this new environment, maybe it is more realistic that they, you know, they take in a total funding of between say one to $5 million. And then from there, they are fun. They're they no longer need funding. Um, it. I think a lot of companies will try it. I am uh, perhaps a little bit skeptical as to how many will actually succeed, but it's it's definitely going to be tried more than it was in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. I say this as a 
observer and not somebody, you know, at the highest end or able to, you know, get deep into it. But one of the observations I feel like I can make in the ZERP era mm. is when you look at accelerators, when you look at funding, these things in and of themselves were seen <clears throat> as milestones. I go to yep. X, then I ra- – like it wasn't why am I doing this and then this is – that was always the, the, the funny part when I thought about accelerators. It was like I got into this accelerator and that was the milestone, not what is being accelerated. Right. Yeah. Like you're, that, that, that was the – there's a verb in there that's supposed to get you from farther along, not just I have this social – proof point now i mean obviously that's that's a key thing if you get if you're in the highest end of a, a yc a plug and play or whatever sure um but the other 99.9 percent of those don't give you that social badge totally and and the same thing is you said like well i'm going i'm jumping from a to b to c in many of these things and that in and of itself is the proof that we've hit it not necessarily the growth curve that's gone along with it and that's what you've seen where You've raised at valuations that you grow into. I mean, I remember, you know, I didn't watch Silicon Valley live. I kind of watched it later, but right. I, I just remember those things of like, oh, you know, the, the big deal, like you you could take less money. Like I could. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great clip. Yeah, yeah, and like I could. You know, I don't have to grow into these kind of crazy these crazy numbers, right? And it's it's, yeah. it's the same kind of thing of like, you know, and obviously some of the great founders start thinking in that way, but it's. But it, I think it was the point that you made with it's when you create the hamster wheel of like, well, I have to go from this to this to this yeah. versus the people who <clears> kind of <throat> went through and watched the damage of the last couple of years and seeing like, oh, well, let me rethink how I'm building this out and how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And I think it's a, you know, the next kind of phase as we're looking at almost the the not fun part of the, the data that you're looking at um, and, and the damage. So one of the numbers that you have is you have your like you know bridge rounds and shutdowns yeah how are you we're seeing a lot of bridge rounds right and i and I want to make sure we talked about this last time you were on you're defining a bridge round as anything that's not considered a new primary round right correct so yeah people use bridge in two ways but for us it's pretty specific for us the bridge round is in a priced equity round, so not convertibles in any way, that is in the same named series, which we know because we actually have the contracts and the documents, as the prior round. So if, you have, if you've raised a series A, we consider it a bridge if you then, the next capital in the door is a series A hyphen preferred to whatever the name is. And that typically, I mean, almost always, to be honest, is led by someone who's already on the cap table and it's for less money than the original Series A. And it's usually for a valuation that's either flat or just like a touch up. Um, There are down bridge rounds as well, of course. But that's typically what we're talking about when we say bridges. So when when I'm looking at the the numbers here, you know, seed is in the mid-30s. A is in the mid to high 40s. You know, and and on, and these are much higher than the you know the previous averages. So we we seem to still be in this kind of survivability perspective. And so, one question I have: I don't know if anybody's done this type of analysis, but in thinking about it as a forward-looking indicator, 
do bridge rounds work? I mean, like to, to be to be honest, like I mean, no, how much good. correlation is there between someone doing a bridge round and then eventually shutting down? I mean, you would expect it to be high, right? Especially at the earliest stages, but that's because the modal outcome is shutting down regardless. Um, it is a great question. I personally haven't done that sort of correlative analysis. I think that bridge, the bridge rounds that are happening now, I think you've touched on sort of the sore subject, which is a lot of these are like last gasp, trying to see if there's any way to keep this company alive kind of stuff. However, that's only one, like if you're thinking about it as a barbell, that's one side of the barbell. And the other is funds saying, look, I think this is one of our best port codes. I actually want to consolidate ownership in it before they get to a series B or whatever. And I want to like double down on them now. Essentially, you can think of it as like almost a, like getting ahead of their own pro rata. Um, And that's definitely happening too. I don't think, I think one of the indicators of the health of the venture ecosystem as a whole will be the percentage of these bridge rounds declining. And that implies that there are a lot of companies that are asking for bridges that are not going to get them, um, which leads, you know, directly into the shutdowns data. I, I don't think we're through the woods on shutdowns yet. That's for sure. So, it's really when we get to the bridge rounds back to because bridge rounds are normal. I mean, we see them. As yeah. you, I mean, looking at these, I mean, you know, looking at your numbers, <clears throat> price price C thirty three percent average, A thirty percent, and then on down. So like yeah. they happen normally, and yep. you have shutdowns. But again, not not all bridge rounds lead to shutdowns. And as you said, there's the cases of hey, let me let me get ahead of the the valuation spike that I know is coming. Yep. So th- that makes sense. But yeah, and, and, and now as you said, as the, the shutdowns happening here, I mean, these numbers are just I mean, painful to look at. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's a real shame, you know, and, and people bandy about the stat, like nine out of 10 startups shut down. That's true. It's always been the case that the most likely outcome for any tiny new venture is that it won't make it. We know that, but it is, I think, a categorical change to have this many startups shutting down altogether, especially if you just look at it from the idea that a lot of these startups have actually raised significant capital already from venture capitalists. It's, you know, the number of startups that have raised $10 million and shut down last year was up 2.5x from what it was in 2022. So it's not just the, the two folks in a garage kind of startups that are not making it significant companies are shutting down. Um, They're shutting down for all sorts of reasons. There's a few of them that are saying returning capital to investors and saying, I'd like to do something else that is happening. Not, not a, not a large percentage. There's a lot of them that just don't have the ability to fundraise anymore. Um, And then I think there's a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of them that maybe didn't make, don't make sense in uh, an era of higher interest rates and, really, you know, scrutinizing company costs and things. Um, and maybe they were getting a little bit of a false signal as to their go-to-market prowess in 2021. Uh, and now they're just not able to kind of make the jump. Um, I hope, I really hope that the first half of this year is sort of the worst of it. And then it kind of trends down. I'm not totally confident in that, but knock on wood. Yeah, what what are we seeing in terms of the velocity of the shutdowns? Because you said that you saw some, you know, the, the it's not just the small, it's a ten million. Yeah. Is it 
are we still seeing is it the 21 and 22 or is it still if it the people who raised in 18 and 19 are also getting slammed like what kind of backlog are we looking at or is it you know as you said like it all made sense in 21 and wow we're done in 23 yeah uh definitely not done um in terms of the cohorts like a lot of this is still companies that may have even raised before 2020 and 2021 in 2021 in some cases it's a mix across the board um but if you're looking at trend you know uh q4 was worse than q3 and december was worse than october uh i think january will come in at higher than december in terms of total shutdowns um so this is this is really it's tough it's super tough um and i don't think uh, i i think that some of it is sort of conditional on the idea that there's all of these companies that are coming to their current portfolio investors and asking for capital at the same time. And then those, and that explains, I think where some of this dry powder is going, it's not going to go to net new startups. It's going to go to their current portfolio companies to like keep them alive. Um, But they're not going to be, you know, VCs are not going to be able to double down on their whole portfolio. They might double down on three out of 20. Uh, And so then what do the other 17 do? So that's interesting because so purely anecdotal, what I'm hearing, and then obviously want to match the data where I'm, I was hearing in like the first three quarters, uh, a number of VCs were talking about not really writing a lot of checks in 2023, and then in Q4 yep. starting to hey, like I, I didn't write anything, and then I wrote two checks, right, and yep. a, a yep. bunch of different things. And I, I've talked about how I'm starting to hear a bunch of deals. You know, I know of a bunch of deals that haven't been announced yet. So I think I feel like some of the logjam is starting to to break in 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 a good way and now at the same time you know you're saying the shutdown numbers are are increasing so i'm trying to square the circle here in that we're seeing more checks start to be written yep um the shutdowns are increasing yeah so how are we is it that they are going to new companies. It's the Brit. Like, what are we? Um, or is my anecdotes not? Am I am I missing the the whole the big picture? I think that I, we're hearing the same thing, and and I think that the fundraising in Q one will show that. I think that you know VC started writing more checks uh, late last year. The uh, to me the circle is squared by the idea that yeah these are going to be checks into net new companies. So you know. Uh, I don't know if you, you know, you've seen that meme where there's a mom in the pool and she's holding up the golden child. And then there's other children who are kind of just drowning on the side of the pool. Right. That is sort of happening across venture right now, which is VCs are getting excited again about new companies that they're interested in. And perhaps they're willing to say, look, you know, as is always the case with a venture portfolio, a lot of the high, high percentage of these are going to go to zero. And I'm actually okay if they go to zero faster uh, than maybe than we would have naturally expected. Um, so that that's the unfortunate part, I think is, um, I, I think it's healthy for the ecosystem as a whole, but it's really difficult for each individual startup. No, I, zombie companies in the long run are the worst, both from totally. a capital, from a talent, from an idea perspective. Yep. And yep. one of the things that makes ecosystems, I think, thrive in general is the 
acceptance of failure. Like we yeah. understand that you worked and there were reasons these things didn't work out and it's yep. not the, it's not the end of the world and totally. leaving you around to be, you know, sucking up time, energy, capital for 10 years on something that's not working ends up being the, I think the worst result for everybody involved. Totally. Couldn't agree more. Which, um, but that's, I mean, super tough to like, you know, that's easy to say intellectually tough yes. to like, hear as, a, as a founder for sure. versus the sit down moment of saying like, Hey, this is your, this is your baby. This is the thing right. that you're working on. Please give it up and go do something else. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's, that's not a, that's not a fun conversation. Although, you know, in the conversation around VC preference, the preference for repeat founders is not solely a preference for repeat founders who've had exits. Um, there is the idea like you can have a failure on your balance sheet and say, look, I am a two-time founder. Both were failures, but I've learned a ton. I think VCs are pretty receptive to that message as well. Well, right. And I think that's also a good thing to look at another piece of data. We're talking about unlocking, you know, people and the like. And one of the things that I, that I love and we didn't really get into last time you were on is that you guys mm. have access to not just like cap table data, but also, you know, employment data. And yep. you talk about like looking at layoffs and departures and those have been declining in 2023. And look, I'll be frank. I'm trying to understand what this data is telling us, how from, you know, overall in 2023, you've seen a parallel decline in both voluntary departures and layoffs. Yeah. So what does that mean? It's a bit odd, right? Okay. Okay. Um, I, 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 I feel like I thought that was weird. <laughs> no, I'm I'm totally with you. It's a lit, it's a strange. It's not something that is common. Um, and you know, we all saw the big tech layoffs kind of come back again in January. Uh, I, I, my supposition is that private tech will have followed in January. I'm going to pull those numbers really soon. I don't think it's going to be a, a massive spike, but I think it'll be a little bit up. Um, but to this point about layoffs and voluntary departures. Voluntary departures to me are the key indicator of employee sentiment. So what I mean by that is layoffs, employees don't really have any control over. Voluntary departures is a, uh, an employee choosing to leave a company by, you know, for another gig to start their own thing, whatever it is. And that is an implied hopeful signal. They're jumping to something they think will be better. So if voluntary departures are steadily declining and people are staying in seat longer, it just points to the idea that startup employees are skeptical that there's something better out there for them right now, which isn't great in general. Maybe it's not good to have the great resignation where everyone's jumping all the time, but you want a good number of people to be moving and mixing and, and growing in the startup ecosystem. And right now people are going, look, for two reasons. One, um, they're aware of the statistics that say, if you are new at a company, you are more likely to be laid off which is true. Um, And two, hey, I got a pretty good gig. Maybe I don't love it, but a gig is better than not having a gig right now. So I'm not going to like rock the boat. I'm going to stay in seat. And that means that the startups themselves are backfilling less frequently, which means that new hiring has gone down a little bit. Like all of these sort of cycle into one another to point to a startup employment market that's kind of kludgy. It's moving slowly right now. But Okay, I'm going to take a counter to the data just as a question. Could you sure. be seeing a voluntary departures going down if people are feeling confident that they're on a rocket ship? 
yes, that's a good point. However, uh, the exercise data for their equity um, is also declining pretty rapidly. So people okay. are not choosing to exercise their stock. So if you're on a rocket ship and you really believe in it, you're probably going to exercise. We're seeing that decline as well. So it's, I mean, for some folks, I'm sure they're on the rocket ship and they're super excited about it. For the majority of startup employees, they're reading the valuation headlines or the startup shutdown headlines and they're going, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure that my equity is going to be worth all that much. Okay. So if those, if, if decline, if voluntary departures were going down, but exercise were going up, then generally the sentiment would be, we're all on rocket ships and I, I don't want to leave in that. But if they're both going down, then it's a, mm, I don't know where, where, where else to jump to. Completely. Yes. And one of the interesting sort of points that this brings up is will startups as an industry just be smaller moving forward? Because companies that are starting today are going to hit per unit of revenue, they're going to need less headcount than they used to because of AI or whatever. Like, I think that's an interesting question. My supposition is that when the times turn around, hiring will pick back up because it's very, very cyclical that way. But I, it could be decoupled now. I just, I, we don't know. And actually, that's one of the questions I've been kind of putting out there on the actual VC side, which mm. is if we see a bunch of shutdowns of both the fly-by-night funds, right, that yeah. kind of raised and didn't go, to even sure. the larger funds for reasons of like foundry that they told you they were going to not create a generational fund, to the sums that were a little more shocking, yeah. does that mean we're going to see less overall capital? Or are we going to see the same amount of capital, but it's going to be flowing to more name brands that we've all heard of? <clears throat> and then what does that dynamic change to? I think it's really tricky, man. There's uh, If you are a mid, call it, you invest in primarily Series B and Series C companies in the U.S., what does your, you know, this fund, I think there's not very much of a paradigm shift. The next fund, if, if, if it comes true, what's being stated pretty, you know, across the board at this point, which is companies are going to grow up more capital efficient. They're actually not going to need to fundraise after their seed or series A very often, et cetera. Like what do those mid stage funds do? Will this be a permanent um, sort of new level that's a little bit below the peak for venture capital as a whole. It So entailed in that is two assumptions. One, companies can actually get to venture scale with a lot less funding. I think that's still a very open question. I, we have, you know, for every MailChimp that does it, there's a thousand companies that try it that don't get there. Mm -hmm. And then two, will VC as an asset class, will the competition for rounds amongst the best rounds amongst VCs get so fierce that the the round sizes are going to inflate to the point where the total capital invested is the same. It's just doing into let into fewer and fewer companies. That's again, I'm not sure whether or not that's going to happen. I think it's a really interesting moment for VC as a whole. Um, you know, it could be the case that 2021, the amount of capital invested into venture startups in 2021 remains the peak for many years to come. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see as we as we have some of these shifts. So I now want to kind of shift from the macro view to uh, my other favorite topic. And let's uh, dive a bit into the Austin ecosystem uh, and kind of what you're seeing here. Um, 
I want to come off as less biased and kind of the personal thing out. So <laughs> I, uh, I disagree. You should be very biased. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> well, but it'd be, I think it's better for the audience when it comes to, comes from you, not from me. Sure. Um, uh, in this case, so when you guys looked at the kind of top metros, where did Austin end up landing? And yes, this is a loaded question because I know the answer. <laughs> the leading question, I love it. Uh, Austin was number five across our U.S. metro areas. We do U.S. metros by metropolitan statistical area, uh, except for the Bay Area, which we sort of combine San Francisco and San Jose. Mostly, that I, that's a judgment call on my part, but it's mostly because that's how people think about those two metros. And I think um, it makes sense because they're pretty I, well yeah, connected, yeah. I think it's pretty fair. Now, you could quibble with combining other metros too, but in general, Austin was number five in terms of total capital invested um, and then shows up pretty high on the leaderboard for, you know, we broke it out by, I think, 10 industries or so. Uh, it, Austin's doing well, pretty well across most of those 10 industries, which is a, you know, is a distinction that I think Austin holds relative to other up and coming ecosystems is that they're, it's pretty broad based. Yeah, it was, it was interesting when I kind of really looked at that, that map, which was, I think Austin and Seattle and Seattle was the the number six this year. Yeah. Looked very similar to me, which was, they both were sitting around, you know, they kind of broad-based. Both of them kind of had some areas that were above their overall, um, you know, position, some below, yeah. uh, kind of across the board, which which is really what looked like, you know, the Bay Area, New York, and Boston, right? Like, you know, those yeah. were the, your top three, and they had things across the board in all of them, versus, yep. say, something like San Diego, which I think was seven overall, but like 50% of that was in one category. Totally. So you kind of had that 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 pretty over reliance. Uh, I do have a question. Is I was kind of staring at this. Then you have something like L.A., which was fourth, but then it's all over the place, right? It has something yeah. at one. It has something at nine. It has something. Like, how do you start to explain that ecosystem? Yeah, L.A. is. I mean, at some point, quantity has a quality all its own in terms of population, right? So, like, L.A. can only fall so far. There are so many people in L.A. Um, that are some percentage of them are now interested in tech and going to invest into startups, et cetera. I do think L.A. is over-rotated. Maybe not over-rotated is the wrong word, but indexes very highly on specific industries, especially consumer. Right. And the interesting part about if you look at this graph, if I had done this graph based on number of rounds versus number of total capital invested, it looks a little different simply for the fact that the average biotech round is bigger than the average consumer round. So there is some like, you know, if you are San Diego and you are basically mostly biotech, you show up higher in this list than if you were San Diego and you were mostly ed tech. You know, it's, it just kind of, it's a function of the, the capital needs of that industry. But I do think there's something to be said for you know, Boston is a really interesting example. I think in the popular conception, Boston for a long time was just life sciences, biotech, pharma, et cetera. And now when you look at Boston, like they perform quite well across a ton of different sectors. Um, and that, so it's moved from anchor industry only to like a broad based startup ecosystem. Uh, and I think that's a really pivotal move for any ecosystem that's yeah. trying to play. The fact that they were number one in energy was like, what? <laughs> 
big. I mean, I'm sure that was dictated by some like big outsized rounds, but yeah, they're players in medical devices. They're players in fintech, even health tech. Like Boston has a lot of, it seems to be, there's a gravity to that ecosystem that is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and it's interesting as we look at this, because especially if you put, if you broke out defense as its mm. own thing, I mean, obviously I, I'm pretty sure LA would come in as number one with kind of the whole El Segundo <laughs> area there that is just, you know, ramping, continues to ramp up with everything that's, that's building out there. For sure. That and DC would be higher in that defense sort of industry as well. Um, I, we are, you know, so selfish plug here. I am right now undergoing like this big, big taxonomy revamp at Carta. Because oh God, I think I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, it, there's little, I don't even, it's definitely not good podcast conversation to talk about, you know, startup, startup uh, definitional taxonomies, but it is this important question. So like, how can we talk about these industries that are growing in the right ways? So hopefully we have cooler data on that coming soon. But I think one of the interesting things when we look at this kind of cross the board, and I think one of the things that I talk a lot about, we think about the superstar ecosystems versus, you know, the the, the second tier is the fact that, and I think especially in this kind of next era that we're looking at, because we have, whether it be AI or, you know, robotics or quantum, or the, these more horizontal technologies that yep. convergence <laughs> across sectors is one of the big drivers going forward and so having ecosystems that have multiple sectors is a key advantage going forward i agree there's a cross-pollination that happens in those ecosystems as well where founders that are working on b2b SaaS with a dash of ai might get super interested in you know pivoting towards health tech or maybe they had a startup that was you know, they had a smaller exit from a SaaS company and now they're really interested in hardware. Like, I, I think there's something to be said for that sort of fluidity uh, when it comes to like ecosystem health. Yeah, I mean, and you kind of put like, you know, you, you put the Bay Area together and this kind of, you know, really large ecosystem and how we see the interaction between these. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, when you look at the whole list, your, your top 15, and it, it was always interesting to me because, you know, I... I I had moved, you know, to Austin from San Diego, and I always found it interesting how really disconnected San Diego, L.A., and the Bay Area actually were mm. versus the Texas Triangle with, you know, uh, Houston, Dallas, and, <clears throat> you know, Austin, San Antonio actually are. And I, I was just looking at, at this list, and you have, you know, Austin at number five, Houston at 11, Dallas yep. at 15, and that was really outside of California. That's the only other state that really has a significant presence. You have, you know, you have, uh, uh, I'm Worcester, Massachusetts, which I know I've, you know, just butchered there, but that's only like no, five rounds. So, <laughs> um, so clearly it's some, some large rounds kind of going on at number 14, but like yeah. it is, it is interesting that I remember some other data that you'd shown about like how fast like Texas is growing as a percentage of, um, the overall VC market. And so that interconnectivity between the different ecosystems, especially as you have kind of the layered on of the digital ecosystem and remote work and all of that, it is, it's kind of, yep. it's interesting to see how that starts to play out more and more and seeing the, the connection between ecosystems. 
I agree. I think that there is, so Texas as a whole is like really starting to bring to bear uh, like population advantages that it has. And just the general interest in the startup ecosystem there, I think has boomed primarily thanks to Austin over the last call it, you know, five to 10 years. And now they're getting out to a scale where there are enough people interested in every one of those ecosystems that they can start to cross pollinate, as we mentioned before. There's, and to be honest, there's not that many states outside of Texas and California that can support many different cities having strong ecosystems this way. Usually it's like one ecosystem per state. Right. Maybe that's a little different in Colorado with Denver and Boulder, but many people consider those to be sort of the same. You know, it's a 40 minute drive. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of the same thing. Whereas I think it's very clear in California that there are distinct ecosystems between the Bay, L.A., and San Diego. I would call those three separate startup worlds almost. Um, not that they don't have a lot of interplay between them. I I would say coming from that, they have very little interplay with them <laughs> outside outside of the, some of the narratives that are thrown out. Sure. Um, and even in your even in the point that you're making, I think some things in L.A. have a lot less. Even in LA itself is much more fractured than I think than it would like to it would like to be. Totally. But no, I, I just I think it's interesting if everything's kind of you know building up and and I was surprised when seeing this fifteen list just how how high Houston and Dallas are are growing. Yeah, it's um, you know, and I think that that <clears throat> uh, you you know you had a question I think later on about startup investment per capita and is per capita like even a useful thing to look at? I think in some ways it's not, right? It's it's just like kind of a fun way to make smaller places look better on a list yeah. um, effectively. Yeah. But in some ways it does matter. And, you know, maybe a better per capita is like number of startup employees, funding mm-hmm. per startup employee, something like that, where it's like people who are actually interested in the ecosystem. The one thing that I like about a per capita chart is it just shows you in some ways, like it really, to me, it highlights like the, the towns in which startups are the, the industry, like the Bay is startups. It is, it, you know, the way that New York is finance or LA is Hollywood, like San Francisco and the Bay area, this startups is what they do. In addition to the, the startups that are now the biggest companies in the world. So that and that sort of thing is cool, um, and it's easier to see that on a per capita basis. Uh, the Bay is first in total invested, and the Bay is like by far first in number of dollars per person. So, but I want to take the flip side of, to that to that graph, right? So then, what yep. is it? We, we said like so. Boulder is nineteen in investment, and then three in per capita. Yep. So, what interesting does that tell us about Boulder? Uh, to me, it just says that Boulder is a place like if I'm a startup employee, Boulder can be on my list of potential places to live and grow. And I won't have two companies to choose from. I'll have a lot of companies to choose from. And I can like bounce around and build my startup career there. If I'm really interested in small venture backed companies, that's the thing that it tells me is like, this is an ecosystem that has achieved a sort of, it has passed a threshold over which startups are like part of the conversation. Um, now, basically, and the, the I think the contra distinction there is with Chicago, which is like Chicago is a really big place, a ton of people, but 
on a per capita basis does worse than like Tampa or Minneapolis. Right. Um, and so like if I'm uh, not to ding the startup ecosystem in Chicago, but it's it doesn't have the same density as some other places that are just kind of more interested in this kind of tech. Yeah. Well, and then it's funny because then you have something like New York, which is this kind of almost middle middle situation, right? Which is, yeah. you know, it was number three in total investment and then like number seven in per capita. And so it, it really is to your point, like, how do you think about these, you know, just super sized metros like Chicago, LA, New York, where yeah. there's just so much going on and startups are one of the industries versus back right. to your point, startups and tech is the industry of the Bay Area. That's the, you know, that's basically the key point right there is just that startups as an asset class are competing in New York for attention from all of these intelligent, bright people who move to New York for acting or finance or real estate or whatever, you know, head, they want to go work in hedge funds. Like it, New York has a, a hundred things to do and SF, it's like, do you want to work in big tech or you want to work in small tech? <laughs> but you're going to, you know, you're going to be in the tech ecosystem in some way, shape or form. Um, Chicago, I think the same thing. There's a lot of different industries in Chicago and startups have yet to, maybe they're, they're trying to find their footing in that ecosystem a little bit more, but you would know better than me in Austin. It really feels as though startup and just tech in general is, if not the, the, the industry of the town, then certainly one of in a really real way. It's it's becoming more and more, but what's interesting is, I'd say broadening the definition of tech, because mm. one of the things is high end manufacturing is becoming one of those key pillars, cool. and so when you think about a Samsung fab and the Tesla plant and yep. all of those things coming, that's tech. That's that's the future of technology, and that yep. is something that's that that is in Austin, and I think in a middle of the country technology play that that you're not going to find in the Bay Area. You might find some of the innovation that drives some of the technology that is then created. So sure. some of the definitions of tech, and I think that's one of the things that I've kind of tried to dig into a lot is that our definition of tech is starting to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I and you're right. I don't envision, you know, people setting up gigantic factories in San Jose. You know, maybe that'll happen, but the Gudo, as it's called, is, is like a good example of that. That's just kind of a new area that's taking on this sort of manufacturing capacity. Um, and it, maybe it gets back to the the core Andreessen thesis of the software eats the world. There's still a lot of the world left to be eaten. You know, a lot of these industries are transitioning into tech and some of that will happen with big tech and some of that will happen through startups. But as that moves further and further, maybe our data only gets a little slice of that because it's only venture, really. Um, but you can say like tech more broadly is kind of consistently pushing itself into different industries. But yeah, but <clears throat> as as the digital moves into the physical world, it starts yep. it becomes a different thing it becomes you know yep. and i i believe it's this kind of convergence of the digital and the physical is entering a new era of technology right and then cries yep. different things so yep. i, I want to kind of as we we're thinking on this then coming down to some of the other data that i thought was really interesting that you had on um you know comparing austin 
and looking at some of these other, you know, looking at like the Bay in New York that I thought was interesting. One was when we were looking at like valuations again um, and starting at like the seed round, the pre-money valuations for seed across, you know, obviously it's, it's you know, every quarter's different, but, sure. you know, looking across, you know, the Bay, New York and Austin, they're relatively similar. Totally. I mean, is that... We getting back to our flight to quality. Is it? I mean, what, what are we? What are we seeing on this? I'd imagine it is somewhat a flight to quality. I also think again, like there's a part of the seed stage market where valuations are dictated by forces outside the intrinsic value of a company, be that fund economics, competitiveness of an ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. I I do think the truism you can start a company anywhere is becoming more and more true. Now, remains to be seen if you can grow a company anywhere to the same Mm -hmm. scale as you can in SF, et cetera. But at the seed stage, you know, you're talking like the the lines bounce around, but you're you're not going to get on a median basis. I don't think you get as much of a valuation arbitrage in a place like Austin as you used to. As it as that ecosystem matures, the you'd expect the valuation distance to to sort of become a, or get eliminated in the way that if you you know if you're investing in a seed stage round in Charlotte, you're still probably expecting a much lower valuation and for the same amount of traction that you would in the SF or in New York. Well, and one of the things when we're looking at like cash raised in the price C, but then you're starting to see also, especially at the A. We're yeah. seeing both valuations start to shift. Now you're starting to see a break, uh, you know, some distance between the pre-money valuations and the amount raised. Yeah. But I also want to give, give you an observation that I'm starting to have here because we've had mm-hmm. a lot of traditional Silicon Valley VC firms either open office here or just straight up move here. Yep. And in conversations with both them and with you know, more traditional Austin VCs, either kind of the, you know, the Austin Ventures, you know, spin outs or just people who kind of been around for a while. Yep. It's been really interesting to see. I haven't seen a lot of syndicates of, for you know, both of those firms investing in the same companies. Um, yeah. And it really does seem that we're having almost – they're very different companies they're investing in, and they do seem to be different round sizes that they're, inve- hmm. they're, they're investing in. And so, you know, when, I'd almost love to different companies that they're investing in. Like, does that mean they're like taking meetings with different folks, or just like how, what, what's the difference between those two kinds of companies in your observation? It does seem to be that the outcomes that they're expecting see and this isn't a hundred percent across the board but sure yeah. you know the we're speaking in generalities right but the you know the 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 people are trying to look at like unicorns um generational type of companies like those type of plays versus like no we're looking for the 5x 10x you know the the outcome you're you're looking for is kind of dictated who you're who you're talking to. Hmm. Interesting. And so so you'll see, and then from that, I think the economics goes like so. You see 
higher raises in, in larger rounds at at the A coming yep. out of, you know, some of the more, you know, traditional Silicon Valley uh, groups that are coming here, which is, again, might be why you're not seeing, you know, co-participation in the same in the same companies because the economics are not the same for these for these funds. So like, OK, yep. this is this is, you know, we're, we're you know, we're not pricing Too rich for our blood, these. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I think it's a. Uh, it's a really, I think it's a subtle and interesting point, and it's one that I haven't explored through our data, but I really would love to, which is what, you know, when we're talking about the percentage of capital that's invested into startups in a specific ESO ecosystem, is that capital local capital or is that capital from other places? And then VCs in, say, California have just become better at finding Austin companies, Um whether or not they have those VCs have an office in Austin. Um, it's, I'm not surprised that maybe there's a bifurcation between the kinds of funders and, you know, certainly in Silicon Valley, and it's been this way for a long time, like most VCs here are shooting all or nothing with every single one of their investments. And they're, they're not interested in a two to three X. They're only interested in the 10 to hundred X. Um, and maybe that's candidly, maybe that's not, always the best way to run a, an ecosystem. There's there's something to be said for a venture ecosystem that can like healthily promote a three to five X outcome. Um, the economics don't always make sense that way, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's shocking that different funders would have very different differential strategies on their portfolio construction. Yeah. And understanding, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with, as you said, like someone coming in totally. trying to raise 10 million and going and then selling for a hundred, like that's a great return. Yep. And, yeah. and then it becomes because I've gotten in some interesting, you know, coffee conversations about like, so what is an Austin company? Like, what, what does that yeah. mean now? Because if somebody moves here, if an entrepreneur moves here, raises a fund or, or sorry, raises capital from a VC who recently moved here, I had somebody mm. tell me that wasn't an, that that's not an Austin company. I'm like, <laughs> how's it not? Because I'm like, because I, I then I then would return and say like. How many people in Silicon Valley were born in Silicon Valley and <laughs> yeah. you know, like that's that's the nature of the uh, you have a gravity and that's that's kind of how we all that, that's how these ecosystems work you you go the same way the, the the person from you know from Iowa goes to Hollywood to make it as an actor like that's yeah. that's how it works Yeah that's not a uh, you know that's that's not like a not a good thing for Hollywood <laughs> right and it, exactly so I, i'm with you it's not i don't think we should be like checking where people are born to say whether or not that's an austin thing but it does point to the fact that that is a that's an indicator of an ecosystem undergrowing a growth shift right because in boise they're probably not even having those conversations they're like everybody's a boise investor because we only we only talk to boise investors and we're only talking about boise startups right and so yeah and so you start having this different kind of What's the outcome? How are you thinking about it? Is it the quick turn? Then that says, okay, what type of investor am I looking at? Am I, am I trying to make the next, you know, am I trying to turn around a $20 million company, a $100 million company, a $10 billion company? What are we doing with that? And then, all right, then who are the right investors to be kind of thinking about uh, from that? Definitely, which is a thing that I think more founders should 
think critically about at the very earliest stages. If you're going to take one silver lining away from all this downturn, it's that it has pushed a lot of people to sit down and think, what sort of company am I and would I like to be? Because it's not always the case that you want to be the unicorn venture scale business and it's all or nothing for you. And if you fall short of that, it's not worth it. You know, a lot more bootstrapping, a lot more people who are trying to take a little bit of capital, and as we said earlier, and, and maybe try to make a go of it that way. Will that mean that they grow more slowly? Probably. You know, there is a there is an advantage to having capital to scale, but I think it's still probably beneficial for startups as a whole, venture-backed or non-venture-backed, that people are taking that question more seriously. Oh, yeah. There's so many so many entrepreneurs out there that don't need, actually don't even need to venture backed. 100%. And that's yes. a whole different, and I actually think some of the tools that are being built out there make that possible in a way that wasn't possible before. And I am personally on the hunt for a better word than bootstrapping. Mm. So if you have a, if you've got a great nomenclature that we can sort of seed into the ecosystem here, I would love to hear it because I think bootstrapping has, if not a negative connotation, then it it can at least seem as though it's not ambitious enough where I, I think that's kind of, you know, that's kind of bull. I would love to like call these and bootstrapping is one thing, lifestyle business. I really don't like, Yeah, you know, these can be fantastic, amazing growth startups that are not quote unquote lifestyle businesses. So uh, oh, yeah. Maybe we need to do some word shifts on that. No, I mean, there's a great, there was a, there's a coffee shop here called Mozart's that recently yeah. we read an article and they're not venture backed or anything, but like, I forget the numbers, but they actually revealed their like revenue and it was ridiculous how much money they're making. And it was like, yeah. yeah, I would not call them a lifestyle business. I would not call them a small business. Like those are not words that work well for them uh, in terms of what right. they're doing. So, yeah. Totally. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a gap there somewhere. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and I'm, yeah, this is where ChatGPT and some of these things come in. This is a brainstorming tool to figure out some better, some better language tools. Indeed. So Peter, Indeed. I've, I've, I've loved our conversations as always. We always, as, as you know, end on the same question. And, and I asked you this before when we asked kind of what's next Austin, but I, I want to take this in a slightly different direction. So, so last time when I asked you what's next, you, you said something that really stuck with me, which was, is there enough density of interesting people who are excited about hard problems to want to get together and talk nerdy to each other? And it's <laughs> funny because I've had a lot of conversations, and that, that statement has just been living rent-free in my brain for the last, like, five months since we last talked. So just thanks for that, by the way. Absolutely. Um, I, actually, it was funny because I, I, was, I went to coffee with, with, a, with a VC, and we were supposed to be talking about something, and we ended up talking for 45 minutes about um, self-driving cars as a service. So that we, we just go. went on a really random tangent, and that was what we ended up talking about. That's it. So, but I, so I want to turn it back to you, and like, as we think about kind of what's next, and, you know, I, you and I both love data and looking at it a lot. And we look at where Austin is kind of growing and comparing these different ecosystems. Yeah. And we've seen Austin kind of grow. And so my question is, is really the difference between Austin and these other ecosystems, is it really at this point 
just scale? Is it okay, fine to get to the next level? Because you, you, you and I always joke after in, on LinkedIn that LA is the next one up, right? Is it really just okay? Right. We just got to grow three X, and that's it, and we've caught LA. Yep. Or is there something philosophical? Is there something fundamental? there's actually different between a place like Austin that's still sitting outside the superstar tier and, and those. It's a nuanced question. And I think, you know, my offhand comment last time about people talking nerdy to each other in coffee shops is in one hand flippant, but the other pretty indicative of the kind of vibe at some point, it really isn't necessarily about the next marginal dollar. It's about the vibe of the place. Is it a place in which startup, the startup ecosystem like finds a real significant home? I think that's already been true in Austin. So to answer your question directly, is the difference between Austin and, say, L.A., New York, Boston, San Francisco, merely a question of scale? I think in some ways it is a question of scale because... Uh, as we saw from those per capita numbers and things like it's going to be very difficult for Austin to catch say San Francisco as this is the company town for startups. But I think the scale can be different in different parts of the ecosystem. So a great example of this is there's a ton of optimism right now. If we look across the world in Australia about startups. And one of the reasons is because they all expect Canva to go public soon. And there's going to be this moment when it happens, or people are supposing that when that happens, there's going to be this like wake up moment where people are like, this is real. Look at all the capital that all of these angels and early employees and Canva people got. And then that's going to be recycled into the ecosystem. And so like one big exit they're hoping has like this starting gun kind of vibe to the Australian ecosystem and tech, which is already pretty, pretty lively. That strikes me as one potential scale idea, right? Like exits and recycled capital. So at the very highest end, that can supercharge an ecosystem. The other kind of scale is at the very beginning. And that, I think, is the hard part when you look at Texas or non-startup ecosystems. It's like, do what, if we're being honest, what do rich individuals in this ecosystem do with their cash? Do they invest into real estates or REITs or the stock market or do they angel invest? And in the Bay, it's very rare to come across someone with any sort of capital who hasn't heard of angel investing or hasn't dabbled in it a little bit. And I think that that is a good marker of like what percentage of people who have a lot of disposable income take some of that and put it into startups. Maybe that's the scale. That's like the next up part. And candidly, I think Austin could probably surpass places like LA in that without too much difficulty over the next three or five years. Hmm. No, I like that. There's, there's always been that. That's always been an interesting thing hearing about. Um, and that that's come up that there's so many people are in oil and gas or real estate and unlocking yeah. that in. And I do think that a lot more of the people who have moved here over the last couple of years starts to unlock that because of the level that they're at. It's not just, Hey, I'm so-and-so founder, please invest in me or that, or I'm emerging manager. It starts to be hi, I'm, you know, I've made a billion dollars off of this, uh, yeah. off of this. 
you should start thinking about putting, you know, capital play in this direction. Yes, I think it's, and some of that is, you know, as we've spoken about before, just those people who are investing currently in real estate, running into the right person at a party that tells them, hey, I've actually made two startup investments and they kind of get interested and they, it's like a, you, it's a completely unplanned, but sort of density argument where enough people talking about these sorts of things that it becomes, it sh- shifts from kind of rare to, huh, like a good portion of my friends are doing it to, I got to do it. Yeah. No, I like <laughs> that. Peter, always a pleasure. Absolutely, Jason. Yeah, let's do it again soon. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.